Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day together. I thank you so much for all our blessings that we have in Christ, namely salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so today, as we look at your scriptures, Lord, we ask that you would help us to think very clearly about these categories that we're looking into, that we would be kept from error so that we may think well on your text and so also that we may not cloud up the promises that you have for us and for the other saints who have been called out of this world through your gracious work through the blood of your Son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to lay out, um, before we get into chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, I want to label two categories that I think need to be clearly defined and understood because they're the basis of a lot of confusion when it comes to understanding eschatology. Eschatology, of course, is the study of the last things. So what I want to do is before we get into chapter 6, I want clarity on these two issues. The two issues that seem to divide the church into confusion about the nature of the rapture, the nature of the tribulation that's coming upon the world, is number one, when does the wrath of God come? That's the first question we have to answer, and I think it's very answerable. I think the evidence is very clear. If it were not, I wouldn't bother getting into this issue. I would just say, you know what, we can't be sure. Number two, it has to do with the understanding of imminence. Now, imminence is a doctrine that's very misunderstood because those who have denied the doctrine of imminence in the New Testament have really had some faulty logic, and I'll be showing you that. So if we can think clearly on those two issues, when we get into chapter 6 of Revelation, it's going to come alive for us. So I just want to let you know why I'm kind of taking this breather before we get into chapter 6. If we get these down, it's going to make us much better students of the book of Revelation and the Bible as a whole. So again, the two issues are when does the wrath of God come and the nature of imminence? What is it? So we left off last time on this slide. And recall what I'm laying out for you are the promises in the scriptures that the church has been promised to be exempt from the hour of trial. Now, what did I prove on this slide? Well, I proved that the data from Revelation 3.10 suggests that if we are living here as the church, we are heading towards this hour of trial. It's a day and an hour that we don't know, but we've been promised to be kept on the outside of it. And so along with 1 Thessalonians 5.9, which says we have not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also with Romans 5.9, which promises that we'll be rescued from the wrath to come, we see clearly, clearly the data from Scripture proves that we will not be within the time period of the wrath of God. That's what we've laid out. And that's very wonderful news. So now, the only thing we have to wrestle with is when does this wrath come? Or maybe more precisely, when does the hour of trial begin? That's all we're arguing about, right? When does the wrath come? Because we know we're promised exemption from that time period. Okay, so this is where I think we get down to the issues related to the timing of the rapture. And I think there is clarity here. So you probably know that this diagram, when I put it up on a screen, it's a diagram that represents the 70th week of Daniel. So just to make sure everybody understands Think of this as the beginning of that last seven years. Here's the midpoint. That's when Antichrist would set himself up in the temple. And here would be the last three years known as the Great Tribulation. 
And finally, you'd have Christ come at this point uh, to set up his millennial kingdom. Okay, does everybody understand the diagram? So what I'm going to lay out for you are the various views, and I'm going to show you how different camps understand when the wrath of God comes. So let's begin with post-tribulationalists. Post-tribulationalists, one good scholar that I would cite would be a man named Robert Gundry. He wrote a book in the 1970s called The Church and the Tribulation, and it was very influential, yet there was a lot of, in my opinion, errors in it. And what he would claim is that the only wrath that we have present within Daniel's 70th week is at the very end, where it's the battle of Armageddon. So everything else is merely the wrath of man. Now, the problem with that view, just real quickly, is even when the nations are pouring out their wrath upon other nations, according to Isaiah 10, God is the one who does that. In fact, we see this in Revelation chapter 17, I'll show you later, that this is all God's wrath. And so if it was God's wrath in the Old Testament, and he specifically says that he uses the nations for his purposes in Revelation 17, why should we be surprised that the nations pouring wrath upon the world is in fact God's handiwork? Okay, so I just want you to see, though, post-tribulation has that the, Armag- the battle of Armageddon is the time of wrath that we're going to be saved from, and hence we have to be removed prior to that. So it's a very limited time. And so they would believe that the day of the Lord is literally just a 24-hour period in that sense. You're saved from that day of the battle of Armageddon. All right, now let's move on to mid-tribulationism. And that sees the wrath of God is in the last three and a half years. A good scholar that holds to mid-tribulation view would be a man like Gleason Archer. Very good. He wrote, how many here have ever heard of the uh, Gabeline Bible series commentary? Some of you perhaps have seen that. Uh, We have Gleason Archer writes a commentary in the book of Daniel. Very, very good. But I would disagree with him on this point. He believes that the wrath of God is only prevalent or present within those last three and a half years. Okay, so the first three and a half years, again, he would say, is just the wrath of man, all right? Now, there's another view that's somewhat similar, but it's been falsely labeled the three-quarter view. And so, for example, if you see a book that has the pre-wrath view, typically they'll have a line here, and they'll show three-quarters through the tribulation. The pre-wrath believes that there's going to be a rapture. That's really a misnomer. Now, here's why. The pre-wrath view believes, again, the last three and a half years, at some point in that time period, the wrath of God comes. But notice the question mark, you don't know when. So sometime in that last three and a half years, God pours his wrath out and therefore must rapture the church. But their idea of imminence then is that you know all of these other signs, but when you get to the last three and a half years, then you don't know. And so they take the day and the hour, no one knows the day or the hour, They take that quite literally and say you can't know the specific 24-hour period or the 60-minute period, that sort of idea. Okay, is everybody with me? Now, I hold to what was called the pre-tribulational view, and the reason why is I think we can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt biblically that the wrath of God is present within the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. So all we have to do is to prove that the wrath of God exists within the first three and a half years, and therefore that necessitates a pre-tribulational rapture. Why? Because we've already proven Revelation 3.10, Romans 5.9, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, that we will not enter into the sphere of God's wrath. 
All right, now, what evidence would I supply to you from the Bible that suggests that God's wrath is present? Well, the first four seals. Notice the first one. Now, we're going to come to this in Revelation 6. So this is why we're going through all the preliminary work now so we don't have to bog down on these issues when we get to Revelation chapter 6. Notice in Revelation chapter 6, the very first seal is the Antichrist and his forces coming to power. Okay? Now, right away you can probably guess that that's the wrath of God. Remember Jesus says in John 5, you don't receive me, but when another comes in my name, you'll gladly receive him. And so in a sense, God is giving the world over to what they've wanted. They didn't want Christ, and they've always wanted Antichrist. In fact, John, in his first epistle, says that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. And so Antichrist and his forces come onto the scene. But notice here in the second seal, and all the, by the way, all the scholars who hold to post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, they would all agree that these seals occur within the first three and a half years. There's no disagreement there. Now, at, notice at the second seal, you have peace taken from the earth. That's what we'll find out. Now, I want everyone to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and I'll show you why this is particularly devastating and helps us prove that the wrath of God is indeed present. Again, peace is taken at the second seal. You have no more peace on the earth, according to the second seal in Revelation chapter 6. Now, compare that with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Notice what Paul says. He says, Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, let's just stop there. Remember, there's two terms for thief, kleptes and leistes. Leistes has to do with a robber who gets what he wants through using a blunt object or a sword. He uses force to get what he wants. That term is not used here. The term that's used here is kleptes. Many of us have heard of kleptomania. That's someone who can't stop. They got sticky fingers, right? They can't stop stealing. Well, that type of thief relies upon stealth. And that's the term being used here. So you see the emphasis that Paul has then when he says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief is not the violence of it, although it's a violent time period. But his emphasis in this text is in the stealth-like suddenness. Okay, so that's his emphasis. Now, notice in the very next verse... In verse 3, he says, while they, the they here would be unbelievers exclusively, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman and child, and they will not escape. Now, notice that phrase, while they're saying peace and safety, they are boasting that they have peace and safety. Now, could you be boasting that you have peace and safety? when, in fact, peace is taken from the earth? No. So what does that mean? The day of the Lord comes. Remember, the day of the Lord is when the wrath is poured out. It comes while they're still saying peace and safety. Well, you can't be saying peace and safety after the second seal, and we all agree that the second seal occurs within the first three and a half years. And therefore, we know that the wrath of God is indeed present. Now, this should bring up a very important cross-reference, just to prove that when they're saying peace and safety... 
It's not a desire for peace and safety because there's sudden warfare, but it's a bold declaration that they're living during a time of peace and safety. And I want to show you this comparison to what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. By the way, it's good to see you, Gail. She traveled in all the way from Arizona, right? So, yeah. (laughs) Nice to see you back. So everyone, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, 37 through 38. And I think this helps give us clarification as to what these days of peace and safety are like. Notice Matthew 24, verses 37 through 38. Matthew 24, verse 37. Jesus says, for the coming... Now, let's just stop there. That term coming is parousia. That's the technical expression for the second advent of Christ. And remember, that term isn't just a one-day event. It's a complex of days. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know it because there's another reference in Luke 17, 26, where Luke says, as it was in the days of the Son of Man, so it'll be, or I'm sorry, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be plural in the days of the Son of Man. So the only difference between Matthew 24, 37 and Luke 17, 26 is Luke uses days plural, of the Son of Man. In Matthew 24, 37, Matthew records parousia of the Son of Man. So the parousia equals the plural days of the Son of Man. So we know it's many days. And hence, I would say the seven years. Okay, so notice it says, for the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Verse 38, in what way are they just like the days of Noah? Well, he says, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. So notice the description here is life went on as it always had. Life was going on as it always did. Now, let's ask ourselves the question, is life going to be going on as it always has after you lose a quarter of the earth at the fourth seal? No, that's not life as it always is. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, even the unregenerate realize that the wrath of God has come upon them. So what I'm clearly showing you is that the wrath of God is prevalent, or I shouldn't say prevalent, present in the first three and a half years. Okay, now, one of the passages that we'll find us very devastating to prove this is when we come to the fourth seal. The fourth seal lists four judgments that come upon the world. It's sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now, when you have those four judgments that come, well, you know the wrath of God is present. Why? Because those four judgments came upon Israel and Judah according to Ezekiel 14.21. So the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beast were the wrath of God in the Old Testament poured upon Israel. Well, now in the 70th week of Daniel, see what God is doing is he's doing a reversal. The wrath of God is no longer poured out just on Israel, it's on the whole world. So, By what criteria, if it was the wrath of God in the Old Testament, by what criteria do we say it's no longer the wrath of God, but it's only the wrath of the nations? Especially in light of the fact that Isaiah 10, God says he uses the nations as the instruments of his wrath. Well, of course, it's the wrath of God. And it's special pleading to claim otherwise. So clearly, we have the wrath of God that's present in the first three and a half years. Now, we've already proven that we're kept from that time period And therefore, that's what necessitates the pre-tribulation rapture. 
Okay? Now, one passage I want to bring everyone to. Mike, did you have a question or you just resting? Gotcha. That's good. Oh, yeah. Yep. Thank you, Bob. Still moving pretty good for a guy who wrote the house. <laughs> yeah. There's another position that I've heard mm. from some people lately, and that's that there's just no such thing as the rapture. Oh. And we're wasting our time even talking about any of this. There is no rapture. Have yeah. you heard that? I have. In fact, I have a dear family friend that's said that to me. And by the way, that's a bad argument. Here's why. For, uh, well, That's why I'm wanna, asking. Okay. Okay. <laughs> maybe you want to handle it, but no, um, I know what you're alluding to. First Thessalonians 4.16, Paul says that we shall now all sleep, but we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The term caught there, harpazo, means to be snatched up. Now, in the Latin, the term was ruptero, and that is where we get the term rapture. But just because the Latin isn't original, the concept from harpazo in the Greek to be caught up is present. So the rapture certainly is taught, that concept, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I think by inference, also in John 14, that he comes to get us, to bring us to be where he is. Okay? So uh, you can't say that you believe the Bible and don't believe in the rapture. The rapture is taught in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Okay? So that is a biblical doctrine. All right. So now one other thing I want you to see is that even the unregenerate realize that the wrath of God is present in the first three and a half years. And I want all of you to see that. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. This is at the sixth seal. And by the way, there's really unanimous consensus among all the different positions that even the sixth seal is within the first three and a half years. Now, here's what we have to realize is Jesus, remember in his Olivet Discourse? By the way, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 6, 16 through 17. But as you're turning there, Remember when we were doing our discussions in the Olivet Discourse? In the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24, and I think ironically they're both in verse 8, Jesus concludes that when you have the false Christ, you have nations rising up against nations, and you have famines, he concludes that those are the beginning of the birth pangs. Well, that's synonymous with the first four seals. Okay, so Jesus is pl- placing the beginning of the birth pangs within the first three and a half years. And then lo and behold, he goes on to describe the Antichrist who sets himself up in the temple. And this is the worst time period that the world has ever known, the Great Tribulation. So Jesus gives us an outline of what Revelation gives us in very great detail, you see. All right, now, Revelation chapter 6, the point being here is even the unregenerate realize that the wrath of God has come. Notice what they say. This is Revelation 6.16. It says, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The obvious answer is no one, except those who are in Christ, right? Now, notice when the question is for the great, or the declaration is for the great day of their wrath has come. The verb has come is an aorist active indicative of erkamai. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, normally when you have an aorist tense verb and it's in the indicative, the gloss is referring to past tense, things that occurred in the past. Now, 
Those who hold, for instance, to the pre-wrath position would want you to believe that that aorist is what's called an ingressive aorist. Or maybe they would say it's a proleptic aorist. The idea there of an ingressive aorist, think of you're ingressing, you're coming into something. An ingressive aorist would be the idea that it's just beginning. So if you hold to the pre-wrath position, they would want that to be an ingressive aorist so that now the wrath is just beginning. But you have to have some contextual clue that steers you away from the normal default position of the aorist indicative, which is past tense time. And we don't have that here. So do you see they're really reading the meaning of the verb based on their view rather than allowing the verb to help define their view. Does that make sense? So we've already seen evidence that the wrath of God is present from these seals. Well, now at the sixth seal, almost at the midpoint, even the unregenerate say, you know what, this has been the wrath of God all along. Now, think back. Bob has showed us numerous times in the book of Luke and in Acts that when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, they're somebody to be listened to, right? Well, obviously, the unregenerate aren't completely reliable sources. So the idea is they're a little slow, and so the wrath of God has come upon them, and they finally only get it at the sixth seal. And yet even the aorist active indicative of Urkami shows that they finally get it. The wrath of God has come past tense, and so they're looking back and saying, all along, the wrath of God has come upon us. So even the unregenerate know that the wrath of God is present within the first three and a half years. Okay? Does that make sense? So clearly we have to be taken out prior to that time period. Why? Because the church has been promised according to Revelation 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and Romans 5.9 to be rescued from the time period of the wrath of God. All right? Now, the second issue that we want to get into is the doctrine of imminence. Now, this idea of imminence is, I think, clearly taught in Scripture, yet has been very muddled and abused by various thinkers. And let me explain what makes an imminent event imminent. First of all, an imminent event is imminent because that event is certain to happen. And think about with the parousia of Christ, that's obviously certain to happen. We have that promise from God. But the second thing that makes an event imminent is the fact that this certain event is unknown as to when it will occur. So the timing is unknown. Does that make sense? Now, let me give you an example of the first. The event is certain to happen. Jesus says, Mark 13, 32, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. So the event's sure to happen, but the idea is you don't know when it's going to occur. And again, like Craig Blomberg cites in his commentary in Matthew, the day and the hour there certainly represents the day of the Lord and the hour of trial. It's not merely a 24-hour day or a 60-minute window. What he's talking about is he's just described the 70th week of Daniel in detail. That's what Jesus was describing in his all of a discourse. And all, he, all of a sudden he comes to, well, when will it come? He says, you don't know. The angels don't know. It's certain to come, but you don't know when. Hence, what do you have? You have an imminent event. Okay, let me give you another example from the scriptures. James 5 Verse 8, listen to the admonition. James says, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Now again, the term coming there is the term parousia, the technical expression that is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel 
because it's a complex of days. It's not just a one-day event. So the coming of the Lord, he says, is near. Well, now the question is, well, how near is it? Well, notice he doesn't answer that question, does he? It's near. Now, let me give you an example. I think this will clarify. Let's think about a landmine. Let's say you're a soldier and you're dealing with landmines. And you're on this path and someone says, stop right there. You're near a landmine. You have for yourself an imminent threat. Why? Because you don't know how near it is. Is it the next step? Or is it two steps? You don't know. And all you do know is if you take one more step, if you don't hit it, you're one step closer to it. It is an imminent threat, isn't that? But now let's say I say to you, you see that landmine over there? It's 30 yards away, and I've marked it with a red mark. Is it an imminent threat? No, because it's over there. But see, Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour of this certain event. And in fact, James says this coming is near. Well, how near? Let's take the landmine analogy. Is it the next step? You don't know. You simply don't know. That's what imminence is. Now, let me give you another thing to think about. An imminent event can break forth at any time, but it's not limited to occur within any certain time frame. Let's go back to our landmine analogy. Let's say I say you're near a landmine, and you take a step and you didn't hit it. You say, well, you're lying. It's not an imminent threat. Well, just because you don't know where it is, doesn't mean it's not going to occur. In other words, it doesn't have to occur the next step. Maybe it's the second step or the third step. It doesn't, an imminent event does not have to happen with any certain time frame. In other words, if someone were to say, well, how can you believe in imminence? After all, it's been 2,000 years since the first advent of Christ. Well, the whole point is, is we've been living with that expectation all along. It could have, bro- it could have come upon the scene at any time. It could have been the next step all along. So that's the idea. The second thing I want you to think about is that there's no precursor to tip you off to an imminent event. If you have a precursor, you know, if I say, hey, the landmine's over there 30 yards away by the red dot, well, then it's not an imminent event. Okay, so what we have to wrestle with then, is the New Testament really teaching us that the event is certain? Yes. Is it teaching us that there's no precursor prior to this time period, and I would say yes, and that's where the debate really hinges. Okay, so Ryan, you got a question. I really like your analogy with the landmines okay. and the, the no time frame, yeah. because decades and decades after a war, take World War II, there's still landmines yeah. and, and underwater mines that still get set off. That's right, that's right, well said. Yeah, very tragically. Yeah, in fact, if you ever take a trip to Israel, If you're along the Golan Heights, they'll say, you know, don't get too comfortable in the weeds over here. There's landmines, right? You know, don't send your best friend over over there, you know. So, yeah, they're still there. Now, let's talk about some objections to this doctrine of imminence. And there's three that I think were powerful to me that I had to answer. There's a lot of other objections that I didn't think were very relevant because they're easily refuted. But let's take the hard ones. Number one, passages about Christ being near are significant because other events are described as near in the Bible, yet were not imminent. Okay, so let's think about that. 
a, a person that I know very well would say, look, there's other passages in the New Testament that say there are events that are near, but yet they weren't imminent. So why are we claiming when we see, like in James 5.8 on the previous slide, that the coming of the Lord is near, why are we saying that that's necessarily imminent? Now, let's give an example. This is the example, for example, uh, Douglas Moo, who was a post-tribulationalist, would cite. He would cite a passage like John 11.55, and he's a very good scholar. I've learned tons from him, and I continue, uh, I will in the future as well. But John 11.55, let's read that. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So what he would say is, look, you have the same Greek term, ingus, that's used for near for the Passover, and yet they knew it wasn't an imminent event. So why, Eric, are you claiming that when it says the parousia of the Lord is near, why do you say that that has to be an imminent event? Well, realize that he's really comparing apples and oranges. See, a contradiction, remember what do you have to have a contradiction? You have to be comparing the same categories. But notice he's comparing two different categories. First of all, he's dealing with a known date, with the Passover. You see, the Passover is on the 14th day of Nisan. And so when John writes that it's near or was near, it may have been the 11th. But you could look at your calendar and say, oh, it's the 11th. Yeah, Passover is near. It's three days away. But let's take the parousia of the Lord. We know it's certain, but when does it come? You don't know. It's an unknown date. So when James says that that's near, well, do you look at your calendar and say, well, that happens on the 14th? Well, no, you can't do that. So how near? So again, it's the difference between saying, you're near a landmine. That's the parousia. Well, how near? You don't know. But the Passover is like saying the landmine's over 30 yards away and it's by that stripe. Well, you know how far away that is. You see, so he's comparing this Douglas Moo, this post-tribulationalist, apples and oranges, isn't he? So he's not comparing the same categories. You can't say that something is not imminent when it's near an unknown date because you have things that are known and that when they're described as being near, they're not imminent. It doesn't follow. Does everybody follow that logic? Okay, so that's how I would answer that first objection. Does anyone have any thoughts or comments or questions, concerns, show ideas? Okay, Steve. Um, I'm looking at the man of lawlessness yeah. and also the covenant that he's going to make. Can you just comment on the timing yes. of those two things? And Thank you for playing along. Uh, we're going to come to that right now. <laughs> You're, the, the check's in the mail, okay? Yeah. <laughs> We arranged this all ahead of time. Thank you. No, Steve, I will hit that. So thank you. That's very good. Let's segue into that. That's another objection. And to be honest with you, this is a very powerful objection to me. I had to answer this for myself. Israel had to be established as a nation prior to the parousia of Christ. Israel did not exist as a nation until May 14, 1948. So what about that? Could Christ really have come prior to the nation of Israel being established? Well, Let's talk about a passage that seems to indicate this. Now, remember, what we're talking about with the parousy of Christ, we're talking about that last 70th week of Daniel. Well, here it's described in Daniel 9.27. Notice, and I won't read the whole thing here, it says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now, the he there is Antichrist. We proved this in some other exegetical work that we've done. It's the same he that's used in Daniel 7. He's the one who wears down the saints. Where did Christ ever make a covenant for seven years and then in the middle break it? Well, of course he didn't. 
And so this is Antichrist, not Christ. Okay? But notice it says that he will make a firm covenant with the many. Well, who's the many? Well, it's clearly in the context of Daniel, it's Israel. So we know that there's going to be this Antichrist that makes a covenant with Israel for seven years. And so does that not then necessitate there being the nation of Israel prior to the rapture? Well, think about this. In May 14, 1948, when Israel became a nation, I asked my grandpa about this some years ago. He died when he was 95. In fact, uh, Peter and Christy were at his funeral. And I remember asking him one time, we're going up to our cabin, and I said, hey, Grandpa, do you ever remember when Israel became a nation? Did you have anything to tip you off as to when that would occur? And he says, no, it was really strange. He says, all of a sudden I was listening to the radio and Israel was a nation. And mind you, this is in the technological age. So think about this for a minute. Now, again, we're conjecturing this because this didn't actually happen. Israel really is a nation. But let's think about the fact in 1946. Let's just give a hypothetical that the Lord returns and raptures his church. And in the wings, unbeknownst to the world, you have an Antichrist figure. And because of the severity of the rapture and the events that had unfolded, all of a sudden you have this global rebellion where people abandon their governments and they go to a one government where they give their allegiance to this Antichrist figure. And part of the agreement is that he was going to bring the Israelites out and into their land, and he would also build their temple. And all of a sudden, three and a half years into the temple-building project, it's basically completed, but he sets himself up into it, and he pretends to be God. And the rapture did occur, and the world did have Israel. And yes, part of the agreement of establishing Israel initially was that this grand figure would build their temple again. So you see, there's ways of conceiving that this could have occurred, but with the rapture setting it all off. Now, There are certainly promises like we see in Ezekiel 37 that the Israelites will be brought into their land. And we know that this is exactly what unfolds at the end of the 70th week. Remember in Matthew 24, in fact, turn your Bibles there. Matthew 24, I got to remind myself of the very verse. Let's um, look at verse 31, Matthew 24, 31. So this is at the end of the seven years. In verse 31, notice Matthew records Jesus saying this. It says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Now let's stop there. The term loud is literally a great trumpet. That's a direct reference to Isaiah 27. The only reference to a great trumpet in all of the Old Testament is Isaiah 27. And it's a direct allusion to that in the Septuagint. Now, why is that significant? Because when you read Isaiah 27, it's talking about God would supernaturally bring his people back into the land. It's not just that they come by their own volition, but the the text says in Isaiah 27 that he's going to pluck them up one by one. Now, you could say, well, that's just imagery. I think we take that very literally. He's going to bring them supernaturally back into the land after the 70th week is done. Okay, so part of those passages that we understand where he's going to regather Israel back into its nation, it will be accomplished at the end of the 70th week and therefore is not a precursor prior to the 70th week. Does everybody see that? Okay, so for the sake of time, I don't think that it's necessarily the case 
that Israel had to be a nation. I think you can conceive of a way that God could have had the rapture, the rebellion, the apostasy, the Antichrist all come in that order. Now, Israel is a nation, so we're really set up for bear, aren't we? All right, so we don't have to worry about that hypothetical, but I don't think that that's necessarily an objection against imminence. In fact, let me give you one more passage. It was something I was reading, and I wasn't even intending to, to get into this, but turn your Bibles to John 21. I want you to see the flavor of imminence in the New Testament. And this is a passage where it's kind of an aside, but I think there's an implication of imminence associated with it. John 21, and here's what I'm referring to, is remember when Jesus says to Peter, hey, if I want him alive until I come or to remain, what's that to you? So it's, let's see, it's John 21, 22, thank you. So let me just back up to verse 21. This is John 21, 21. It says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So now Peter's digging his nose into the affairs of what Jesus does with his other apostle, John, right? Peter's just rambunctious, isn't he? So verse 22, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, notice in verse 23, it says, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But now John, listen to what he does. He reiterates the logic. You have an if-then. Here's the condition. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? Now, we don't know if it's his will to do that or not. He doesn't just, Jesus doesn't say it is my will. He just says, what if it is? But so to the forefront is the coming of Christ that he can say that, and it doesn't smack them as implausible. John could literally be alive, and he comes. And Jesus is saying, well, what's that to you? So the whole idea is the timing of his parousia, his coming, is completely in his hands. We don't know when it's going to occur, but to them it was very plausible that the kingdom would come in the lifetime of the disciples. So much so that the term parousia, according not to Aragama, but the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, not exactly some dispensational source or pre-tribulational source. Not, by the way, I'm not a dispensationalist. But it's not necessarily a pre-tribulational source. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says parousia had such imminent connotations to it that they dare not use it with reference to the first advent of Christ, lest the two be confused. So parousia becomes exclusively a term referring to the second advent. Why? Because it's so imminent and at hand. All right? So I'm just showing you the flavor of imminence in the New Testament. All right, now, let's go on to the third objection. The third objection is that the Bible seems to teach that the rebellion and Antichrist must come prior to the day of the Lord. Now, maybe we should have done this in the beginning, but let's all put our noodles together. This is a difficult passage, and it's created a lot of problems. All right, now let's get into it. Let me show you the passage that would be cited by post-tribulationalists and others to prove this position. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 2 through 3. Here I like the NRSV, and I'll explain why. Here Paul, now let me, before I read this, what was the issue at Thessalonica? They thought they were living in the day of the Lord. So because they thought they were living in the day of the Lord, they thought they had missed the rapture. So do you see, Paul can't say, well, you didn't miss the rapture, because otherwise you would have been raptured. 
That's kind of like when my little boy says, well, why does the sky look blue? And I said, because it looks blue. I'm not adding anything to the conversation, am I? I'm just asserting the consequent, right? I'm just asserting what I want to prove. So I'm not adding anything. So what he has to do is he has to say, well, look, if you were living in the day of the Lord, the first thing within the day of the Lord are these events. That's how he's going to answer them. He says, do you see these things within the day of the Lord? Well, no, then you're not in the day of the Lord. Because he can't directly say, well, you didn't, you weren't raptured, therefore you didn't miss the rapture. All right, so let's read. So he does not want them to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, in other words, it's not from the apostles they're getting this, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Aha, that's why the NRSV is so good. Notice it has already here. Now, some versions have uh, come or pending or uh, some other term for imminence. No, no, no. NRSV, hats off to you. You get it right. Already here, the verb is a perfect tense. of It's anastaken. Now, anastaken, every time it's used, and I say again, every time it's used, this verb in the perfect tense, it always has to do with something that is present in the New Testament. It's already here. Okay? So they thought they were already living in the day of the Lord. But notice what he goes on to say. He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Now, let's stop there. Notice what's in red. This is what's called a product, or I'm sorry, this is actually an apodosis. That day will not come. But do you notice that I have it italicized? Notice in red, I have it, that day will not come as italicized. Everybody can see that? The reason that's italicized, it's italicized in many of your Bibles, is because it's not in the Greek text. It has to be supplied by the English translator. Okay? So what Paul does, and this is common in Semitic languages, it's common in the Greek language, when Paul uses an apodosis, okay, let's first of all back up. Does everybody know what a apodosis, apodosis is? Apodosis is if this, apodosis is then that. Okay, well here Paul has the apodosis first. Notice the if clause is really an unless. That's the beginning of the apodosis. So he often has the apodosis inverted. He has the apodosis, the then portion, first. But what he does is he assumes that you're going to take the verb from the previous clause and you will supply it for your apodosis. And he does this all over the place. He does it in Ephesians 5. If I have time, I'll show you another example of this. So in other words, logically, what we as translators have to do, because Paul doesn't supply the apodosis, is we have to go back to the other verb and supply that. And it's obviously with reference to the day of the Lord. So we have to supply the day of the Lord is already here. That's the logic of it. But notice what our English translators do. They say, that day will not come. Well, what happen- why are they introducing this future-oriented tense when, in fact, the verb before Anastakin was perfect and had to do with something that was already at hand? You see, they're not wondering when it will come. They think it's already here. So the way to render it is, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day is not present unless the rebellion comes first. Does everybody see that? That's the correct logic of the text. By the way, Christy has put up on our um, bulletin numerous times the link to the article by Robert Thomas, Eminence in the New Testament. He is a scholar from Master's Seminary. I highly recommend that you read his work because he can get into greater detail than I can here. But he's very, very good on this issue. He's very good. Back in the bulletin. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay, so now let me just 
fast forward and show you again the logic of the text. Verse 3, let no one deceive in any way. Now, this is kind of my version just to show you what I think it should look like. Let no one deceive in any way, for that day is not here unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. Okay? Now, the next thing we have to handle, though, is notice the condition. Now we're in the paradisus. And the condition is the rebellion must come first. But here's the dilemma. Does the rebellion come just prior to the lawless one being revealed? Or is it prior to the day of the Lord? And by the way, that's a valid option in both instances. It can be either or. Yeah. No. No, it's one or the other, really. And I'll show you evidence. Um, let me, so here's our options. Let's put the options up on the table. Option one, the rebellion comes first. Notice the rebellion. And by the way, I think it's a rebellion against God's law and order so that they give their allegiance to the Antichrist. That's the rebellion that's being referred to. How do you have religious apostasy of unbelievers? It's the unbelievers who are doing this. So how, how can a, a re, unbeliever apostatize? No, they rebel. That's why it's a good translation the NRSV has. Okay, so it's a rebellion so that they give their allegiance to whom? The Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. So option one is that when it says the rebellion comes first, okay, you have the rebellion and they give their allegiance to the Antichrist. Well, then you have the day of the Lord begin. That's option one. Option two would hold that the day of the Lord is here to here, and the first things within it are the rebellion in the Antichrist. In other words, the rebellion comes before the Antichrist, the lawless one. But it's within the day of the Lord, and so there's nothing to tip you off prior to the day of the Lord. Are you with me? Now, believe it or not, this grammar in the Greek only occurs in three other passages in the New Testament, and they're all listed here. And believe it or not, they all support option number two. And this is where Robert Thomas shines. He'll show you in his article, and we'll go through it ourselves here. The only other three passages... In the Bible that have identical Greek, they have the same if-then construction, and they have proton, which is first. Identical constructions are those three passages. Now, Matthew 12.29 and Mark 3.27 are synonymous. They say the same thing. So we'll only look at Mark 3.27 and John 7.51. Because if you know Mark 3.27, you know this one as well. Does everybody follow me? So let's begin. Let's look at Mark 3.27. Now, before we begin, notice what I have highlighted in blue is the apodosis. That's the then. Everything in red is the prodosis, the if portion of the statement. So again, it's the similar. Remember, we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 3, that they were inverted. Normally, you have the prodosis, apodosis, but Paul inverts it. You have the apodosis, prodosis, the same construction here in Mark three twenty seven. So notice he says, and remember, he's being accused, Jesus is, of casting out Satan by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul. But he says, well, no, that's not possible. So anyway, he goes on, he says, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now, what's very interesting is notice you have a then. It's a timing indicator. Now, listen to what Robert Thomas says about this timing indicator. He says, quote, this is from that article you can read. He says, because the tati then, in the last half of the prodesis, he says, the proton first clearly evidences the occurrence of the first half of the prodesis before the last half. In other words, he says, the binding of the strong man 
prior to the plundering of his house. It does not indicate that the entire prodesis is prior to the apodesis. In other words, the binding of the strong man and the plundering of his house prior to the entering. So let me put this as a diagram. Here's Thomas's point. You have entering and plundering is one big event. After all, you can't bind the strong man unless you've entered his house, right? How are you going to bind him if you're not with him? So the entering and plundering is seen as one event, much like the day of the Lord would be seen as one event. And the first thing within it is what? The binding of the strong man. It's the first thing within the event. There's an event. You have an entering and you have plundering. And that event of breaking and entering, we might put in our day and age, the first event within, or the first thing within that event is what? You have to bind the strong man. Otherwise, you can't plunder his home and take his stuff away and then go sell it in a pawn shop, right? So the first thing within the event is the binding of the strong man. And so do you see then this passage supports our understanding that when it says the rebellion comes first, the rebellion doesn't come prior to the day of the Lord, but it's the first thing within it. Do you see that? All right, now let's go on to the next one. This next one I think is easier to see. It's the John 7.51. John 7.51, again, blue, apodosis, red, protosis, the same construction, same language. Now, remember, this is one of the Pharisees, I think it was Nicodemus, who's standing up for Jesus. And he's saying, hey, we don't judge the guy before we hear from him, right? No, but notice how he says it. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? So notice the law here, the process, the judicial process is being personified. So the law doesn't do something, namely it does not judge a man unless it first hears from him. Now listen to what Thomas insightfully says. He says, clearly in this instance, hearing from the defendant does not precede the judicial process. It is part of the judicial process. So think of the diagram here. You have this judicial process. Our law does not judge. So he's talking about what the law does. And part of the judicial process is that you first hear from the defendant, then you judge him, then you sentence him. But in other words, hearing from the defendant doesn't come before the judicial process. It's part of it, right? So when it says that the law does not judge, unless it first hears, the hearing from the defendant is part of that legal process. It doesn't come before. You don't have the hearing of the defendant before the legal process. That's part of the legal process. Does everyone see what I'm saying? So again, let's think of the logic. That would indicate then that the rebellion would occur within the time period, not prior to it. Does everyone see the logic there? So again, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2.3. It is not here, that is the day of the Lord, unless the rebellion comes first. Well, the rebellion would be within the day of the Lord. And then the man of lawlessness would be the next thing, the son of destruction, which is an appositional phrase further describing who he is. Or let's put it again, just in a clearer manner. Again, it is not here unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What we've just seen now, and the only other examples in the Greek New Testament is clearly that these things are within the day of the Lord. So here's the day of the Lord. It begins on the left and it ends on the right. And the first thing within the day day of the Lord is the rebellion. And yes, it comes before the man of lawlessness because 
you need the world to rebel and give their allegiance to him. And Paul is saying, have you seen a worldwide rebellion and one man step forward, the man of lawlessness? Well, no. Well, then you can't be living in the day of the Lord. So, again, this doesn't refute the doctrine of imminence because to refute the doctrine of imminence, you'd have to say, well, the rebellion comes before the day of the Lord. But no, it's the first thing within the day of the Lord. That's what we've just proven. Okay? And so that's what's created so much angst, I think, and trouble regarding uh, imminence and the doctrine of imminence in the Pauline epistles. Okay? Now, by the way, this then shows that we don't have a contradiction in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 3, when Paul says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Do you know liberal scholars are smart enough to say, hey, if in fact you have to have a precursor prior to the day of the Lord, and Paul says that he comes like a thief without warning, that's a contradiction. Okay? Because you can't have an imminent event with a precursor. And they would say, well, then Paul didn't write... He, he wouldn't contradict himself, and so therefore, 2 Thessalonians wasn't written by Paul. But what we can say is, no, no, when we get it down right, when we do our homework and say, you know what? No, there's nothing that precedes the day of the Lord, and therefore, there's no contradiction between 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, and what we have here, then we can say, yes, Paul wrote them both. And there's no contradiction in Scripture. So, you probably didn't realize that the pre-trib position helps you not directly, but indirectly, it's a position that helps you refute the liberal critics that claim that there's a contradiction in Paul or he didn't write it. All right? So, dear ones, there's nothing to precede the day of the Lord. The rebellion and the man of lawlessness are the first things within it. So, what happens is the Lord Jesus raptures his church prior to the hour of trial, just as promised in Revelation 3.10, the world then rebels and they give their allegiance to the false Christ. And that's the first thing within the day of the Lord. And lo and behold, when we turn to Revelation chapter 6, what do we have? We have the rider on the white horse. And it isn't Christ because Christ is seen in Revelation 19.11. It's the false Christ. What did Jesus say in his Olivet Discourse? There would be false Christ. Now, when the Antichrist first comes on the scene, he has others with him. In fact, we'll read about that in Revelation 13. So you see it unplay, or, you know, play out and unfold before you when you get to Revelation chapter 6. But if we don't get these things down first and have these things as a backdrop, Revelation 6 loses its punch because in the back of our mind, we're thinking, well, there must be something to tip us off to that. No. Yeah, Bob. Concerning this rebellion that we're talking about, yeah. maybe to make let's that idea is a little fuzzy. Sure. Um, I believe that if you go back to Deuteronomy 32, mm. where God draws out the boundaries of the nations, yes, something that uh, Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17. Yes, draws right? out boundaries, yeah. He draws out boundaries. And so going way back, the way God rules and allows rule to go on in history is that there are boundaries in nations and civil governments. Right, right. And when one of those civil governments gets uppity, (laughs) like Nazi Germany. The other's getting up. And they're going to say, we're going to rule the whole world. Yeah. We're going to erase all of God's boundaries. Yes. We're going to have one guy over everything. Right. 
and you're all going to submit to us, what's happened throughout history is other governments don't want that. Right. And they rise up and knock down the uppity one. Exactly. And that's kind of how it works. That's right. Okay. Now, this rebellion, now that's how God has chosen to providentially rule yes. the world we're living in. Amen. That's restraining. And, and we're yeah. told about that in Romans 13. Yes. Christians aren't to be rebels. We're supposed to pay taxes, Amen. submit to civil authorities, be good citizens, pray that as much as possible we can live peaceably with all men. Yes. Even though our souls are grieved like lots. Right. Okay, when we see what's going on. Yeah. But there are civil governments. What happens that Eric's talking about here, this rebellion, yeah. is that that goes away. Okay? And yeah. how God ruled the nations exactly. from Deuteronomy 32 till to this day, it's out. he removes his hand of restraint, yeah. and they get what they want. Yes. One man... No more of these boundaries. Exactly. One world government. They build Babylon. And they're back to Babylon. Exactly. They're back to Babel. Right. We'll be, nothing will be kept from us. Right. We'll have all power. We'll have all unity. And we're going to build a tower into heaven. Yes. And nobody's going to stop us. Amen. That's and exactly that's right. what this is about. Yep. <laughs> exactly right. And so, if Eric's correct... The rapture of the church is sort of the t event that happens yeah. that sets this off. That's right. And we have a precedent set. Remember, you were talking about exemplary judgments last week? Yes. And we have exemplary salvation events as well. Jesus cites, remember, Lot is taken out before Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Noah is taken out before the wrath of God comes. Jesus shows us there's a precedent for the righteous to be saved prior to the judgment. Well, that's exactly what Bob is just saying. And that's exactly what I think Scripture supports. The data is clear. I think that that's very clear. Yeah. Now, thank you, Bob. Very good point. I think that really gives a lot of clarity to what the rebellion is. And it ties it together with the rest of Scripture. Yes, amen. Now, we, we don't have much time. Um, I've got a bunch of passages that affirm imminence. And to be fair with you, there's so many that I couldn't even get into all of them. But let me turn you to one that kind of intrigued me this week. And it's, it's a little bit new to me. As I was studying, and I just want to leave you with this, and I'm actually going to cite from Thomas again because he's got such a nice quote. Well, there's so many good, oh, there's so much good stuff. Well, we'll, get, we'll, we'll come back to this another time. But, but turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2.16. So think about this. The day of the Lord, then, is a blessing to us. It's imminent. An imminent blessing is about to break forth. You and I are going to be saved, brought to Christ, and forever secure with him. But this parousia, this 70th week of Daniel, the coming of Christ is an imminent threat to unbelievers. And so turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. And what's very interesting is the grammar that we have being used here. 1 Thessalonians 2, 16. Notice... Let's back up in verse 15. He's talking about these unbelieving Jews. Who they, he says, They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Now, verse 16, By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved 
so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last, or literally in the NASB, to the utmost. Now, what's interesting is the grammar there that the wrath of God has come upon them, you would expect that you'd have a future tense verb, that the wrath of God is going to come upon them. But it's an aorist active indicative again. The wrath of God has come upon them. And so the idea that you have present in that text is that the wrath of God is filled out. And at any moment, this torrent of God's wrath can break forth. It's been filled up to the full. And so the next event then is the breaking forth of this torrent of God's wrath. Why, other, why else would Paul not use the future tense? He could have said, well, the wrath of God will come upon them. No, he says, it has come upon them. The idea, just like the kingdom of God has come upon you in the Gospels, Jesus says, it is an imminent prospect. The kingdom of God and the wrath of God are an imminent prospect to come upon the world. And we see this in passage after passage after passage. The New Testament teaches imminence. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 talks about us being rescued. And let me just, in fact, cite that passage for you. Let me just back up once right here. Notice it says, we are to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Listen to this D. Edmund Hebert. He says, quote, believers are pictured as waiting for the return of Christ. The clear implication is that they had a hope of his imminent return. If they had been taught that the great tribulation in whole or in part must first run its course, it is difficult to see how they would be described as expectantly waiting Christ's return. Rather, he says, they would have been described as bracing themselves for the great tribulation and the painful events associated with it. Dear brothers and sisters, when you read the scripture, do you see that new covenant believers have to brace themselves to meet Antichrist? Or are they to expectantly wait for Christ? But I think the data is clear. It's the latter. And so I don't have time to get all these texts. We want to get into Revelation 6 next time. But realize the New Testament teaches imminence. And those who have thrown challenges, I think those challenges can be refuted. All right? So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've given us the scripture, that the promises are clear. And I ask, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters here and perhaps those that are listening abroad, if they're going through a difficult time with their family, with health, with finances, that this would be an encouragement to them, that your imminent return and your kingdom and your glory, your resurrection, it's real and it's at hand. I pray, Lord, that you enable them by your spirit to persevere. I pray, Heavenly Father, if there's anyone listening who's not a believer, that they would repent and flee from the wrath to come. So now I pray, Lord, that you would bless Bob as he speaks to us in the sermon. I pray for our time together as we worship and as we also rejoice in our salvation through our being together. I ask, Heavenly Father, that everything we would do would be pleasing to you, that you would equip us to do that which is pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.